Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Speech on the Principles of Finance. This speech was written by Victoria C. Woodhull and delivered at Cooper Institute, New York City, Thursday, August 3rd, 1871. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Special thank you to the listeners who contacted me during the week. Firstly, thank you to new Patreon, Misha Gregg, for pledging a monthly dollar amount to express your gratitude for the podcast. Thank you also to Podbean listeners Iki and Kimball 81 for your lovely reviews on Podbean. It means the world to me that I'm able to help you get a good night's rest. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like... You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. It's always good to hear from you and I hope you're getting the rest that you need. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. The Principles of Finance Money Is it a principle or a property? To the careful student of history, there is a very great deal more to be considered than the mere political facts that stand as landmarks along the path of progress which the nations have traversed since the plains of Iran poured forth their hosts westward. These facts are the mere externals that adorn the pages of historic lore and embellish the memories of the great men who have lived in and moved the world at various times in various nations or which clothe the lives of tyrants and usurpers with their just reward. The superficial student of history cares only for the results of the evolution of nations, for the fact that Sesostris was the greatest of the Egyptian kings, or that Semiramis rose by her military sagacity from the rank of a mean official's wife to be the queen of Ninus, and afterward to the Assyrian queen, who should march an army of three millions men across the Indus to conquer the Indian king, running down the course of events, 
he traces the rise and fall of nations, after Assyria, then Egypt, next Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the Dark Ages, out of whose womb was evolved modern Europe, and lastly the birth, development, struggle, and recovery of the most remarkable nation which has yet arisen in the world. Behind these facts, which are but results, lie the real motor powers of history, and they are deeper, broader, and more important than is that which they evolve. There is an external and an internal phase to everything existent in the world. Up to this generation, the external has apparently borne the more prominent part in determining what should be next. But now the analytic age has begun, wherein facts do not suffice, wherein new systems, new theories, new philosophies, and even new religions are constructed, not by an examination of the errors of what has been, but by the discovery and the application of the principles, the powers, which underlie those errors. Heretofore, there has been no inquiry made by the rulers of the people into the general principles of government. It was sufficient that there was a government maintained, the governors caring for little, but the power to compel the people to do their bidding. But it is the beginning to dawn upon the minds of those who have something more than a selfish interest in humanity, that there is a science of government, aye, even that there is a science of society, and such minds are endeavouring by the deepest researches to discover the principles of these sciences. In our government, the principle of individual rights is theoretically held, though in its application government still interferes with those rights. The legitimate functions of a government, based upon the rights of every individual, over whom its power is exercised, are limited to the duties that will best subserve and protect the interests of individuals. The proper misunderstanding and practice of these functions is the most important thing for a people to arrive at, but having arrived at this, the basis of all the relations of the people, the scientific construction of the various departments of the complete superstructure, which is to cover all the public interests of the people, as well as to maintain their private interests intact, can be begun. After the general principles of government are properly formulated in constitutions and vitality given them by laws, a correct 
a scientific financial system stands next in importance. If a country have a true system of government and do not have a true system of finance, it can never attain to any permanent prosperity. Literally speaking, finance is a part of government, since in organising it, means for its support are among the first considerations. Hence, it is plain, if there are principles of government, so must there also be principles of finance. It has never been pretended, so far as I know, even by the profoundest political economists, who are sticklers for the gold standard, that any financial systems the world has ever known were developed by the scientific application of self-evident truths, which is the nature of principles. The various systems of which use has been made were simply experimental, devised for political reasons as the best methods to meet the agencies of the times in which they were required. In instance, the greenback, the necessity for which was such as to shake the nation to its very centre, and to fill the minds of all patriots with a dread foreboding. If there have been no scientific money systems in vogue, and it now comes out that the world has arrived at that degree of advancement wherein policy should give way to principles, even in finance there can be nothing gained by going back to review the errors failures and fallacies of the past. Nothing valuable can be gained by wading through the almost innumerable statistics which have accumulated to a sufficiently great extent to bewilder the most comprehensive intellects. Having for ten years been deeply engaged in studying the principles of government, I learned that no system of government could be perfect unless its financial department was perfected. Therefore, I have frequently endeavoured to solve the financial problems which statistics propose, but invariably failed to learn anything that even promised to look well as a basis for a new and improved system to say nothing of its promises in operation. The conclusion was inevitable that there have been no acknowledged or even known fundamental principles of finance operating in any of the many systems of the many nations and that the so-called money of the world is not now, nor ever was, money in the scientific sense of that term. All the statistics, failures and errors of the past, with which the history of money abounds, being of no value, must be utterly ignored in any inquiry which proposes to predicate a natural and scientific money 
as distinguished from arbitrary inventions, devised to meet the various exigencies of nations in their growth, prime, and decay. And any person who proposes to teach finance or a new system, by arraying before you the evidences of the past, contained in figures amounting to billions of dollars, simply proposes to try another experiment, to culminate in another failure. Therefore, I shall present no principles, percents, and compounded amounts except, perhaps, as examples to illustrate the mathematical impossibilities of the fallacious theories by which financiers have attempted to dazzle the world, but who have only succeeded in accumulating in the hands of a very select few that which, by an exact justice, should belong to and be distributed among the people generally. In order to intelligently discuss and arrive at legitimate conclusions regarding the question of money, it should first be determined just what is to be involved in the discussion, for around this, as around all other general things, there has been such a mass of rubbish and extraneous matter aggregated that the main question is always in danger of being lost sight of, unless this be first removed and the real issue left clearly exposed. Most of the confusion which follows the attempts to solve the money question arises out of the fact that the same words in the mouths of different people do not mean the same things, or that different words are used by different people to mean the same thing. If there are two words in common use to represent similar objects, but which, upon close analysis, do not represent precisely the same thing, it is better that one of them be discarded. It is necessary, therefore, to settle prior to the beginning of this argument, precisely what the several terms do mean, which are prominently in use in connection with the money question. It is perhaps near the truth to say that this settlement is the argument. Very few persons have any well-defined comprehension of what is the real significance of the terms gold, money, currency, intrinsic value, and wealth. If these words are analysed, what do they scientifically represent? Gold is a product of the earth only to be originally obtained by labour and expense, and both practically and scientifically bears like relations to labour that all other things do which are produced by labour, and none other. But there has been an importance attached to gold, which has not been accorded to any other product of labour. 
It has been coined and called money because it was coined and by custom and common acceptance made an arbitrary standard of value which none of its qualities warrant when subjected to analysis as will be shortly shown. Gold bears the same relation to real money that a religious theory bears to real religion, which theory, when comprehended by the intellect of the people, loses its value as a substitute for real religion, but which, until comprehension comes, it is better to have than to have none at all. So also with gold. It has in theory been considered as money, but when a true money comes to be comprehended, it will lose its value as a substitute therefore, and sink to its proper sphere among the other products of labour. It is altogether probable that gold was the very best substitute for money during the part of the world's evolution, wherein people were guided and controlled by policy, and before principles were recognised as that which should govern, let their action lead where it might. As the world is now beginning to act from principle, for the sake of the truth, so also must they now begin to formulate the principle of money for the sake of the principle. Wealth is whatever is produced by labour, which adds to the comforts, the happiness, or the life of man, and everything that does this, either directly or indirectly, has intrinsic value, that is, has the capacity to bless mankind. Wealth may and should be divided into two kinds, namely permanent wealth and transitory wealth. Permanent wealth consists of all those products of labour which are not themselves transferable into life, comfort or happiness but which may at all times be exchanged for that which is thus transferable into that which can be used to continue life. Gold, silver and precious stones are among the best illustrations there are of permanent wealth. Transitory wealth consists of all those products of labour of which direct use is made to maintain life, or to add to its comforts and happiness, and which, by such process, are absorbed into and become a part of the life of humanity. Transitory wealth, it will be seen, is much the more important of the two, since, if people only possessed permanent wealth, their life could not be continued an hour by it, unless there were a possibility of exchanging it for the necessities of life. It would seem that all kinds of wealth are intrinsically valuable, since its various kinds may be either directly used to maintain life, or may be exchanged for those which will maintain life. 
wealth and intrinsic value then mean the same thing. But what does the term money mean, or has it no necessary significance in the inquiry? There was a time when there was no such thing or word as money, but at that time there was life to continue, for which wealth was necessary. It seems that wealth had existence before money was thought of. Wealth is substance, of which money is the principle or representative, but which in itself has no intrinsic value. Money is an invention made to represent wealth or value, in order that its various kinds may be exchanged with facility, or that there may be exchange without the absolute and direct and immediate receipt and delivery of one product of labour for another product of labour. All the products of labour may be exchanged directly and without the use of any representative or go-between, for which time being stands representative of the one or the other, but not so well at all times and under all circumstances. Money is anything which stands representative of any product of labour, that is, that can be made use of to facilitate the exchange of, any of the results of labour, which are wealth. Currency is only a form of money, the same as gold is only a form of wealth, and in the same manner that gold is wealth, is currency money. Money being the principle of representation in exchange, everything of which use is made to facilitate Exchange in the form of representative value is money. Anything which can be transferred from one party to another, anything that is negotiable, which is not actual value of itself, is money. This includes not only all currency, banknotes, but also bills of exchange, the ledger and bonds. These are all representatives of wealth, all demands for payment at a future time, of a certain specified sum, and consequently are money. It is quite evident that, with the terms wealth and money, we have all the necessary distinctions which should enter into the abstract question of finance, all other terms are but names for separate kinds or forms of these terms to be made use of when they respectively arise in making exchanges. Now, everyone must at once concede that that which best represents all of the products of labour will also best exchange them and is therefore the best money. It is equally clear that gold in no way represents any labour, but that which produces it. If gold were a true representative of the results of all other labour, except that which produces it, would it not also be apparent that such labour, 
must be equal to all other labour. Were gold a thousand times more valuable than it is to be held, it would not even then be able to represent all other values. Therefore, gold is a false standard of value, a false representative of wealth. Many people think and speak as if gold would be of no use to this country if it were to come into disuse as money, that we should entirely lose it as wealth. The very reverse is true, since we should have just the same quantity of gold that we have now, to have use for the same purpose for which it is now required, to export to other countries in exchange for imports. Suppose our imports to amount to a thousand million dollars per annum, and that we export cotton, corn, and pork to that amount. What would we use to have gold except to loan to other countries? And could we not loan it as gold, taking their representatives of value for it, equally as well as though it were coined into money? having the seal and stamp of the government. It is well known that we do not export gold to Europe as so many American dollars, much as so much gold by weight of a certain degree of fineness, the stamp of the government attesting to that degree. It is seen that the real character and qualities of gold are the same as those of any other product of labour which we can exchange direct for other products of labour which we want more than we do the gold. If at any time the balance of trade is against us and we have no quantity, corn, pork, gold or anything else to make it good, we must then make it good by our representatives of value, our bonds, to be converted when we shall have these products. This process has been actually going on ever since we began to export bonds, either national, state, county, city, railroad or bonds of other incorporated companies. Now, is it not perfectly evident that we have not only produced by labour what we have exported, which we have been pleased to denominate merchandise, but also that we have produced all the gold that has been exported? And in this connection, is it not just as much an article of merchandise as is either cotton or corn? Gold cannot at one and the same time be both money and merchandise. If gold is money, so also is wheat, cotton and corn money. Since they perform the same services and possess the same qualities as merchandise that gold does. To be perfectly clear in our conclusions, 
for money must be resolved into its uses and entirely divested of all its fictitious and irrelevant relations. The fact that money is that thing which is made use of to exchange real values must be the initial starting point of which sight must never be lost until it is definitely settled what will best perform this service. Anything which can be made use of for any other purpose whatever is not the best thing to be made use of as money because the demand for such a thing for such other purposes destroys its positive value as money by causing fluctuations in its exchanging power. It is a grave financial error for this country to endeavour to return to gold as money. All the practices under the gold standard have been positive and ample refutations of the arbitrary value accorded to gold. A dollar in gold can only exchange a dollar in value in any other substance and the practice of issuing a greater amount of banknotes than the bank has gold dollars to redeem them by is a legalized system to rob the people since it is evident that a bank having $300,000 in notes in circulation and only $100,000 in gold in its vaults can redeem but one-third of its circulation if it be all presented at once for redemption. All the other securities of a bank, such as its discounts, personal property, and real estate, may become of no value or may be placed out of reach of the holders of its circulation so that the only real security for its circulation is what it may have in gold in its vaults. Beside, what right has a bank to receive legal interest on three times the amount of its real security? Is it not most... Is it not this a most transparent method of swindling the people? Hence I assert that the use of gold as money always results disastrously to the producers of wealth and always beneficially to those who are permitted to absorb all their productions. Another unanswerable reason why gold carrot cannot answer the requirements of money is found in the degrees of value which belong to different products of labour and which are universally determined by the sacrifice required to produce them. That is to say, all other things being equal, the relative value of products is determined by the time and labour required to produce them. The increase in the value of manufactured material is in exact proportion to the time required and wealth consumed in their manufacture. The value of gold is determined in precisely the same manner 
and it is simply foolishness to assert that the value of gold never changes, or that it has the same purchasing power at all times. Suppose there should be immense fields of gold, suddenly developed all over the country, so that it would become as common and plentiful as iron or coal. Would it not decrease in value in comparison with other products? That is to say, would an ounce of gold then possess as great a proportionate value to other products as it does now? No one will pretend it. Then gold is just as much the subject of fluctuation as is any other product of labour. And for just the same reasons, demand and supply, which are the great arbitrators of value in all parts of the world. Everybody knows that for a certain quantity of gold, a certain quantity of cotton must be obtained, and for a certain quantity of corn, a horse. The fact that the horse is obtainable by the corn does not convert the corn into money. Neither does gold any more than the corn become money because the cotton is obtained thereby. The gold for the time is equal in value to the cotton, and so is the corn to the horse. Now what is required of money is this. Suppose the gold, cotton, corn, and the horse to be of equal value. A person possessing an amount of money, representing the value of either of the four can, at his discretion, purchase whichever he may choose, since the money would equally represent the gold, cotton, corn, and the horse. Anything that may be used for money, that will not do the same thing for any variety of the products of labour, values being equal, is not money in any sense of that term. Incidentally, in this connection, because it has an indirect bearing upon the question under consideration, I wish to call attention to a mistake that has been productive of more financial ills and consequent injustice to a large proportion of the people who are the wealth producers than any other single cause and that is the fundamental error of making land wealth which it is no more entitled to be scientifically than gold is to be called money. Wealth is that which is produced. Land exists. All improvements made upon land are wealth, but the land proper never. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed listening to this speech about money. I thought it was a great story to fall asleep to, but it does talk to the fact that money has been around fraternity. I hope you enjoy this book and I hope you're feeling drowsy. I'm going to be bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, good night.